Galatians chapter 5, our focus this morning will be on verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of any softness, any compromise, any tolerance. Any passivity, any gentlemanliness, whenever steel in our spine and sharpness to our words and resolve in principle are called for. So grant grace to stand firm and not submit in the face of false teachers, demonic teaching, lies and perversions that would damn our souls. Bless This your word towards that end for the glory of the name of Christ in whose name we plead these things. Amen. One commentator says that this section is freer appearing like a rambling connection of pointed remarks, rhetorical questions, proverbial expressions, threats, irony, and climaxing it all A joke of stark sarcasm. That's all really true. But a clarification and a correction need to be made. First, the correction. Paul doesn't climax here with a sarcastic joke. But a most serious curse, albeit stated with biting Sarcasm. The clarification is that there's reason to this madness. Paul is mad, that's clear, but this isn't madness. We've come to the central exhortation of the letter in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul has applied 
that central exhortation, first to the Galatians personally in verses 1, 2 through 6. Here, he's applying it in reference to the false teachers. And then in the next verses, 13 through 15, he'll do so in relation to their brothers and how they relate to one another. So in this particular section, we have a series of quick jabs. But Paul isn't flailing wildly here. Each one of them is carefully aimed at the false teachers and they are landing hard. He begins by telling them, verse 7, You were running well. The race metaphor is a common one with Paul. The most familiar, no doubt, being those words to Timothy as he's nearing the finish line. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Back in chapter 2, verse 2, he mentioned his visit to Jerusalem. This is near the beginning of his apostolic ministry. He visited, he said, to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. What does it mean to run well? Well, clearly, it involves not being hindered. And not being hindered means obeying the truth. It means standing firm. Not submitting. Running means standing firm. Whenever Paul rebuked those who were giving heed to the Judaizers, it was because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, they weren't standing firm in the gospel. And for that reason, they were not running well the race of faith. This is a race in which if you are caught off, you are to blame. If you're tripped, it's because you weren't ready for it. Enemy interference is expected in this race. This is not a gentlemanly race where your opponent has agreed to stay within the lines. This is a race for warriors. The word that Paul uses that you have translated as hindered sticks with this racing metaphor. The roots of the word mean essentially to cut off. It's hard to miss the double entendre that Paul intends with this. By circumcision, these false teachers seek to cut them off. To divert them from the race of faith. If the Galatians are no longer running well, it's because they failed to stand firm and not submit. If you're duped by a false teacher, the blame falls on you for being duped. They will face their consequences. We'll deal with that in a bit. But the responsibility for not being hindered, the responsibility for obeying the truth lies upon you. If you eat the apple, you cannot blame the serpent. The reason being... God has spoken. 
running means obeying the truth. And the truth that Paul has in mind here, no doubt, specifically, is the truth of the gospel. Again, Paul's rebuke of Peter and Barnabas and those who got caught up with them was that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Obedience to the gospel is belief in the gospel. Romans 16.26 speaks about the gospel going forward to bring about the obedience of faith. But what we see here is that we're not just to believe in the gospel for our salvation. We're to believe in the gospel as our salvation. It's the working out of our salvation. That belief in the gospel will work its way out in love as we walk by the Spirit. Jesus said that the work of God is to believe in the one God sent. Being cut off in this race means running the wrong direction. Away from belief and reliance and trust in Christ to trusting in our own works. Remember Paul opened the letter stating, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Deserting Him who called you. And here Paul says that, verse 8, this persuasion is not from Him who calls you. God called them in the grace of Christ and now they're turning from that place where there is grace to this persuasion. In the original language, the word for persuasion here carries with it both the active and passive ideas. We, we speak of being persuaded, but then we might say our persuasion and simply be speaking of our belief. But here it has the idea of this is their belief because they've been persuaded. They've been influenced. They've been induced. Again, they're in this position because they failed to stand firm and not submit. What is this persuasion? It is, verse 1, they're submitting to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2 and 3, it's they're accepting circumcision. It's they're seeking to be justified by the law. Verse 4. And this persuasion is not from God, the God who calls them, calls them into the grace that is in Christ. This persuasion, via the false teachers, is demonic. As Paul said earlier in chapter 4, now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, you have it as elementary principles, better translation, which you have as an alternate translation in the ESV, the elemental spirits of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. This persuasion that you can be justified by works of the law is not the doctrine of heaven, but the doctrine of hell to which it leads. And concerning this false teaching, they need to know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You remember Jesus once told the disciples, seemingly without preface, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And they think he's speaking about bread. They're confused. Jesus rebukes them, essentially saying, Have you not learned with me that bread is not an issue? And then it says they were aware he was speaking of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, the teaching dealt with here, this leaven is identical to that leaven. As the Pharisees were to Jesus, so the Judaizers are to Paul. Seeking to divert attention from Christ to works of the law. A little false teaching goes a long way. A little leaven makes the difference between a flat bread and a large loaf. Likewise, a little false teaching can make the difference between heaven and hell. A little false teaching is what causes, what will cause, many to cry out on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus will respond, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Luther writes in philosophy, a tiny error in the beginning is very great at the end. Thus in theology, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. Doctrine belongs to God, not to us. And we are called only as its ministers. Therefore, we cannot give up or change even one dot of it. And so if I may alter the metaphor without changing the truth, false teaching is like cheap aftershave. A dab will do you and the burn is eternal. 1 Corinthians 5 Paul uses the same metaphor, but concerning moral sin. Tolerated sexual sexual immorality, Paul says, will spread and infect the whole lump. That kind of leaven is threatening enough, but the leaven Paul deals with here is much more serious, as you can see by the change of tone between 1 Corinthians in comparison with Galatians. The Corinthians were flaunting God's moral law. The Galatians were keeping it. And yet, Paul's most severe language comes out in this letter. The Corinthians were a mess. But you will find instances of warm language of love and affection and encouragement intermingled with his rebukes there. None of that here. The leaven of moral sin is a deadly poison. But the leaven of doctrinal sin is mortally radioactive. Luther helps us to see the difference. He said, therefore, as I often warn you, doctrine must be carefully distinguished from life. Doctrine is heaven, life is earth. In life there is sin, error, uncleanness, and misery, mixed, as the saying goes, with vinegar. Here, 
Love should condone, tolerate, be deceived, trust, hope, and endure all things. Here, the forgiveness of sin should have complete sway provided that sin and error are not defended. But just as there is no error in doctrine, so there is no need for any forgiveness of sins. Therefore, there is no comparison at all between doctrine and life. One dot of doctrine is worth more than heaven and earth. Therefore, we do not permit the slightest offense against it. But we can be lenient toward errors of life. For we too err daily in our life and conduct. So do all the saints as they earnestly confess in the Lord's Prayer and the Creed. But by the grace of God, our doctrine is pure. We have all the articles of faith solidly established in sacred scriptures. Is our doctrine complete and full? That is not what he's saying. Is our doctrine without any error at all? No. But concerning the gospel, the scriptures are plain. They are clear. They are easily understood concerning the essential core of the gospel. And concerning that gospel... We must not tolerate the slightest trace of leaven. Despite the potency of leaven, you see Paul expresses his confidence that this persuasion will not ultimately be their persuasion. His confidence though isn't in the Galatians themselves. It's in the Lord. I I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. How can he say this? Because the apostolic gospel of Christ upon which the church is founded that Christ said Concerning this very truth, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Paul's an apostle of Christ. His words are Christ's words. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they will follow me. John 10, 16. In happier tones, Paul expressed the same truth to the Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Following a warning concerning apostasy, the author of Hebrews says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. But perhaps Paul's greatest expression is that which we find in the First letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Put it in theological terms. The saints will persevere in the faith because God will preserve them in the faith. 
Paul was certain not only that God will keep his saints, but he will judge those who trouble them. What's the penalty that he's sure that they will bear? It's that which he opened the letter with. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. They will face not simply damnation, but the greatest Possible damnation. In a text that's often misunderstood concerning charity to little ones. For the reason that this qualifying statement is often missed. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones. Here's the qualifying phrase. Who believe in me. Whoever causes one of these little ones. One of my children. One of my little ones. One of those who believe in me. Whoever causes them to sin. It would be better for him. To have a great millstone. Fastened around his neck. And to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You remember in 2 Corinthians. Where Paul speaks about Satan. Disguising himself as an angel of light. He then goes on to say that those who are His servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Teachers of the law. And then He says this, their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul is doing nothing here other than expressing the confidence that we see The psalmist expressed so many times that so many are uncomfortable with today. God will deliver His people and this means the destruction of their enemies. Psalm 68, 1-3 God shall arise, His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate Him shall flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Next, Paul defends himself from some form of falsehood, verse 11. It seems that some false teachers were trying to deny Paul's apostleship altogether, while others wanted to try to co-opt Paul. If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? After this letter, after the Jerusalem council, we'll see an instance where Paul has Timothy circumcised, not as part of the gospel, but to gain a hearing for the gospel. Perhaps they are aware of the principle that Paul will stand upon then, as him having expressed it in some way earlier, and they're running with that. Or, perhaps it's the principle that Paul will elaborate on in Corinthians, whenever he tells them, 
1 Corinthians 7, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And in either instance, you can see how there's some principle that Paul does stand on in these instances that they might pervert and twist and say, Paul preaches circumcision. And Paul asks, if that's so... Why am I being persecuted? If he's preaching salvation by works, the offense of the cross is removed. What the cross offends is our pride. Underneath all of our sin at root is pride. The false teachers alter their message, alter the gospel, To appease human pride. 6.12 It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. Who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In contrast, Paul says in 6.17 I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The word that you have as offense here is translated stumbling block in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Preachers of the cross must be ready to be led to one. Paul's next words are no doubt his most shocking in print. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. 
In chapter 3 and verse 1, we have Paul's most severe words to the Galatians themselves when he calls them fools, asking who's bewitched them. But that's as nothing compared to what he says to these false teachers concerning them. Is Paul so angry that he's simply being rude and crude at this point? If you're reading carefully, you've seen that Paul has been sustaining language up to this point so that you won't miss what he's intending to say here. He wants these men who insist on circumcision to cut themselves so that they are cut off. Deuteronomy 23.1 No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. Paul is saying anathema on these false teachers. May they so mutilate themselves that they are cut off from the assembly of Yahweh. Men of God are too soft and polite. Today, to say such things. That's why we sing prom songs for Jesus instead of the poems of the warrior of Israel. For those who will not repent, I say, may the prosperity preachers be shown their bankruptcy before the God rich in power and might. May those who say you must be baptized or partake of their holy sacraments to be, be shown, to be saved be shown to be filthy before the holy God of heaven. May those who say that unless you are baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues, you do not really know the Lord, be turned over to the torments of the hell prepared for the demons who are the true spirits behind their lunacy. May their damnation be made obvious so that God's salvation and glory might fill the earth. If they are not among God's elect, and He does not intend to grant them repentance, may God be God. Anathema on Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, and their man-centered, idolatry-loving, prosperity gospel that robs many of life both now and eternally. Anathema on Bill Johnson, Bethel Church, the New Apostolic Reformation, and the bait of Bethel music and Jesus culture that they use to draw souls into their damnable doctrine that denies the person and work of Christ and the sufficiency of the Word of God. Anathema on Rome and her attempted anathema on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and her heresy of Jesus plus works and Scripture plus tradition in the church. Anathema on the liberal mainline denominations who in seeking the accreditation of men have denied the person and work of Christ and presumed to stand over Scripture and excise from it the true historical Jesus. Brother... Souls are at stake. Let us not tolerate the least trace of leaven. May we stand firm 
May we not submit. There is freedom in Christ. In Christ alone. The Christ who was born of a woman, born under the law, that He might bear the curse for our law-breaking, redeeming us, purchasing us to God, that we might be clothed with His righteousness and adopted as sons. If you've never trusted in Christ, we plead with you. Repent, not only of your wickedness, but all of your attempted righteousness. And trust in Christ alone. And you will be saved. If there's anything worth fighting for, it is this blessed gospel. And so I exhort you again with the words of Paul. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Holy Father, all glory. All praise, all honor be to you and to the crucified Lamb who sits at your right hand. Our eyes see, not because they're better in any way, but simply because you've granted sight. Father, may we not Treat so great a salvation lightly. May we stand firm. May we not submit by your grace. And treasure Christ. And proclaim his glory. In the strong name of Jesus I ask this. Amen.